I think one of the um, words and attitudes I most uh, experienced in my few days being in this country is the word welcome. People seem to say this a lot and one feels they, they mean it. Welcome to America, welcome to Barry, welcome to IMS, welcome to Boston, welcome. So now it's my turn. Welcome to Buddhism, welcome to, to this as it is. Um, something I feel very pleased to be able to offer, exemplify, demonstrate and ask you to take part in. Yeah. And like coming to a, uh, a strange country, there are certain forms, uh, manners, customs, procedures, landscapes, features, situations that are perhaps different from one's home territory that we have to feel welcomed into and understand in the right way. So that these are not obstacles. Coming to America then, um, that's when I actually finally got through all the customs and immediately I went to the wrong side of the car to try to get in. And go around to the other side and why is everybody driving on the wrong side of the road? <laughs> Just the way it is here, isn't it? There's no rights and wrongs about it, the, the way it's done here. And fortunately everybody understands this, otherwise there'd be a real mess. This is what we call uh, conventional reality, of course. It doesn't really matter which side of the road you drive on, provided everybody's doing it the same way. <laughs> you know, when you come here, you know that they drive on the right here. So, in, in um, similarly with this retreat, the various, I suppose some of the forms have been explained to you. And uh, before you came, I guess some of it, uh, when you asked for information, you told what kind of expectations would be made for to, to take part in the retreat. And this is, one, one explains this um, so that people, I don't feel that it's just something they are, they are pressurised into, but that this is what the retreat is about, is about as much as anything else. It's about adopting a particular style. Um, because the Buddhist conventions are, are not just uh, circumstantial, they're actually that which can lead within to meaningful values, reflections, uh, things that can throw light into our, into our human predicament, things where what we may find new values within ourselves, new strengths, new aspirations, and new opportunities to, to rise to occasions that we don't always find just in the material world. And these are, so this retreat, there, are, there is that, there's the opportunity for meditation practice, for, say, for composure, for steadiness, for uh, observation of the uh, movements of our heart and mind, rather than engagement with it. There's an opportunity to relax a lot in, if, uh, in, in meditation. Relax the, from the stress and the strain of trying to achieve or become or repress or attain anything. To a dispassionate contemplation, so that we can, with ease, with dispassion, understand what we are about. Now also, um, the, with relaxation is also the effort to apply, but the effort that's applied is one that's inclining towards uh, not gaining anything, but putting aside, opening up. It's a kind of the effort that you apply, say in massage, when you certainly have to apply effort to unlock tight muscles uh, that are extremely painful. And massage can be quite uncomfortable at times. And uh, meditation isn't always uh, 
comforting and soothing, though this is its, its direction is that way. Sometimes it's quite a severe workout. So, in order to meditate, you have to take this into account, and you actually we're actually making a statement about a retreat, saying encouraging attitudes that incline towards a certain workout, a certain renunciation, a certain restriction. And th- these very words are things that we kind of wince a little bit about. Re- renunciation, restriction, and not what you, you put on the TV to, to sell things with. You know, come, come here and be restricted. <laughs> it's all this kind of castor oil medicines, isn't it? As an idea. Fortunately, this is um, just an idea. It's not an ideology. It's, it's an idea. It's a reflection in the mind. Now, it's not an ideology, it's not a statement to say the ultimate truth is, is restricting and renouncing everything. You know, this is, this is our final goal, is to become totally restricted and, uh, you know, not have anything anymore. This is not, this is not an ideological statement, but it's a, it's a reflection into the mind to work with some of our attitudes, which have become very much accustomed towards constant growth, progress, and... Uh, accumulation to the point where um, people get very confused. If we take that ideological position that our life is one where one should always progress and gain and have more, then it's not easy, it's easy to see just on simple arithmetic that there's going to come a time when there isn't any more. So, like the material, the myth of the, the materialists is this idea of constant accumulation and growth. And one begins to witness the results of this in the world predicament at this time, when we're actually using up, finishing up, exhausting the uh, resources of the planet, exhausting the possibilities that a human being, the kind of things that a human being can do, are actually um, running out. You know, there's only so many things you can do with a, with a human body and mind. And people now have got these enormous opportunities to, to do just about everything that possibly can be done with a human body and still survive afterwards. <laughs> with the feeling that this is somehow going to be for one's welfare and increased happiness. Now the, so the, the, we say, well like, what is the, this country is founded upon the pursuit of happiness, which is fine as an idea, as a, as a reflection in the mind, for the well-being, we consider it that way, the well-being of the, of the human being, of the individual, so that they may fully enjoy and appreciate themselves, or their life, for their welfare. You can say that um, Buddhism, the ideal there is the abandonment of suffering, the cessation of all sorrow or suffering. Similar idea, really. Now, if you take those as, as final statements rather than as ideas, one can make you very grasping. Pursuit of happiness can turn you into a very greedy, grasping person. Always... Oh, seeking more and more and more and more and more. And if you take the abandonment of suffering, it can make you rather negative about everything. You can feel that somehow your intrinsic nature is, is, is sorrowful and you have to get rid of it. So you can become repressive, nihilistic, annihilationist. But when one sees those reflections in the mind, that is, tones, attitudes to, to bring into consciousness, and then to see how do we apply that, where do we apply that. As, as ideologies, they can make us very confused. As heart practice, as, a pr- as an inclination of the heart towards 
say, where is our, where, where is our well-being? Where does our suffering cease? Where does it arise? Where do we actually feel our life? And this is the point of meditation, is to awaken the heart, the, the true awareness of the mind, that actually is that is the place where we experience happiness and unhappiness. Now, the non or someone who doesn't contemplate things can assume that happiness or unhappiness is found in the world, in objects. So we can feel happiness or unhappiness in a place or a person or an experience of some kind. This is the material view. Though that when one is pursuing the material view, your life is very busy. It's a restless existence. It's a, an existence that's bound up with, with going to places, taking things, getting rid of things, becoming this, going, going there, going on holiday, coming back again, so forth. It's, it's a constant movement. if we consider happiness and unhappiness to be found just in the world. Now, a contemplative begins to understand that where, wherever, wherever they project their happiness or unhappiness, whatever they project it upon, it arises in the heart. So, this is quite obvious to see actually, that things one day can make us feel good, Five days later, we don't like it anymore. Person uh, we may find attractive at one time, not so attractive at another time. Our own um, ideas about ourselves can change from being we can feel positive and good about ourselves, or other times we can feel negative or despairing about ourselves. So that where we project this this happiness or unhappiness, success, failure, gain loss, praise, blame, onto, can be, is what we call the world. And it can be our body, our immediate uh, social world, the people we live with, or it can be the planet, the society. It's always that which becomes an object where we project happiness and unhappiness. Now, in, in contemplation, you're not just substituting one world for another. That is, we're not, say, uh, looking for uh, a happy mind or trying to get rid of an unhappy mind state. We're not just shifting our values from an external world to an internal world. Because this is just really doing the same thing. So rather than looking for where's the, the you know, projecting our happiness onto some expected feeling or emotion, or feeling despairing because the feelings and emotions we have are not what we want to have, don't live up to our expectations. We're actually transcending all that by recognizing just in any given moment there is this, there is, we feel good, we feel bad, there is the feeling of happiness or unhappiness, of feeling good, feeling bad, feeling positive, negative, going up, going down. And the steady, or the stable, the refuge place is a constant quality about all this, is there's the knowing. For a human being there is, the, there is the knowing of that, which is neither happy nor unhappy. There is, there is a, there's that refuge place where happiness no longer needs to be sought, suffering no longer needs to be abandoned, and where these, these terms actually point into because at that point we have finalized, we have completely abandoned suffering and we have, we have achieved happiness, we have it. We no longer need to pursue it, we no longer need to get rid of suffering. We have realized that point where suffering and happiness no longer bite, they no longer hold as something that we have to make or achieve. It's the, the consummation is the transcendence of constantly 
projecting feelings onto outside from our mind. Now this is, say, the, the aim of, of meditation. Now, we can call it more properly a, a complete cultivation, because um, if meditation is a kind of, of steering, uh, uh, activities that we, we engage in, exercises that we, we partake in to concentrate, to focus, to learn how to balance in the mind. It's rather like a steering, something that keeps us on the right course. But meditation without uh, a full teaching is rather like uh, having a steering wheel without a car. Maybe, you know, you may have thought, well, I've, you've seen people in, in cars driving along with a steering wheel in front of them and a seat. I'd like to do that. I'll get a steering wheel too. <laughs> you go into the car showroom, there's these Buicks and Oldsmobiles and Pontiacs, you say, give me a steering wheel. I want a steering wheel that'll, that'll take me, you know, go really fast. Salesman looks at you as if you're crazy. <laughs> now you really need to have the engine, the gears, the wheels, the, the gas too. So in, in uh, say if you're just concentrating or focusing the mind, this is, this is fine, but to have the sense of direction, what, what do you put into that? Do you put right effort into it? Or is it just a, I can't, uh, the same uh, grasping or frenzy that one can put into other activities because if it is, it's not, it's not going to get very far. It's just going to take you in a more directed and st uh, way into, into frenzy and, and uh, <laughs> stress. And sometimes people do this with, with meditation. Actually learn how to more closely and clearly drive themselves into stress <laughs> in, in you know, earnest, sincere, committed ways too. Because one takes it too far, one doesn't see the balance of it. And what must be understood uh, that all of this, all of these are what is called conventions. These are just tools. Meditation is a tool. Um, the Buddha's teaching is a tool, the, uh, the reflections are, are tools, the kind of terminology are, are tools that you, you look into, that you, you bear in, into the heart, you, you commit yourself to, in order to take you to where you want to go. Now, where do we want to go? And if we ask ourselves why we came here, what we want to do fundamentally in our lives, I suppose if that que you ask that question slowly enough, clearly enough, and repeatedly enough, you come down to a very simple, fundamental statement. Uh, well, basically, I'd like to... I'd like to be... feel good. Feel happy or peaceful or some kind of pleasant state. And then maybe also I'd like to feel that um, perhaps I'd found out a real truth about life, about myself. And that perhaps my life had been of some, so had been worthwhile for other people as well. And that would be nice too. Fundamentally, there is a, a very good intention in people, in, and you know the fundamental drive of our life. This gets sublimated out onto all kinds of other things, doesn't it? So that in order to feel good, then we do this, we do that, we go here, we go there. In order to feel that we're helpful, we we maybe take up this cause or make friends with so and so or look after this or that. And in order to find truth, we learn a lot, we study, 
we pursue uh, studies, we study at university, we take up beliefs or ideologies, and so forth. The, to the irony of it is that in many cases we go too far, that actually we've missed the wood for the trees, our, our intellect tends to block up the clarity of the mind. Our, sometimes our anxious desires to help others create problems and interference and our search for personal happiness causes us stress and anxiety and a feeling of lack and need. I haven't got enough yet. There's not a, a happiness is th that we pursue is not a peaceful quality. It can be an extremely stressful one because one feels that one, one should have a constantly bright, happy, progressive uh, state of mind. And if we don't feel so good, then we feel maybe there's something wrong with me, you know, I should go to a therapist, perhaps my mother didn't love me, perhaps I'm just, you know, missing out on life or whatever. So the, these, uh, these intentions have to be understood as fundamental intentions for a human being, not as something we have to create. This is the, this is the truth of our nature, is this inclination towards well-being, towards peace, towards truth, and towards goodness. When we take refuge in Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, this is, fundamentally this is what this is about. We're taking refuge, we're actually remembering what our intention is as human beings towards welfare. The, the Buddha is the, is the awakened, the wise, the enlightened, the serene, the happy one. Someone who is beyond suffering. Someone who has attained complete uh, happiness, complete peace of mind. And that is through understanding fully the truth of the way things are, the Dhamma. So we incline towards that. And the practice is what we call a Sangha, which is the good practice, the practice of goodness, the practice of the wel welfare, of compassion, of straightness, of, of virtue, of that which is good for oneself and good for others. Uh, that's a, a fundamental reflection for, for someone looking for guidance, is to remember this. This is not just this is expressed in Buddhist terms, but I think this is a very fundamental human quality. And so that when we are, say, starting to understand Buddhism, we're really looking at a, a language that describes human beings. And you may find some of this language difficult or strange, or not immediately understand it. But when you practice it from the heart, it begins to fit very well. So in this retreat, many times, one should reflect on taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and what these qualities really mean. Buddha also is the, the awakened, so there's the Buddha quality in us, that place where, which is uh, free from sorrow, free from suffering, which is uh, serene, <coughs> joyous. Has, is independent from the circumstances that we uh, experience. This is what makes its, its happiness so supreme and untrammeled, is that it's not dependent upon whether the circumstances are immediately gratifying or not, whether it's cold or hot, whether there's uh, uh, whatever the emotion is going on through the mind, whatever the thoughts, whatever the circumstances. Now, if the only way that this uh, one can feel any sense of of calm or clarity about in those circumstances, if there is, as if there's detachment, and knowing that whatever experiences we have come and go, they pass through us. Essentially, they are not 
anything that we can be hurt by or damaged by and that all of the experiences of our life whether they are joyous or hardly bearable are in fact learning processes that will be for our value if we if we contemplate them with detachment though a Buddha finds even the the suffering and the misfortune of life something that is not without value because these breed great patience, great compassion, great faith, great effort, great rising up. You have to rise up beyond despair, depression, anguish. And if one uses this, these experiences as occasions for rising up, for being brave, for being courageous, for giving the heart, then you'll never find them essentially anything other than just circumstances, they're no longer problems. This makes it very possible to live in this, the world. The Buddhas live in the world, they don't live in a, in, a, in a nether region where there's no longer any misfortune. Buddhas, the life of the Buddha is one of living in, say, the, the historical Buddha, living in ancient India, with famines and pestilences, people trying to kill him, arguments and quarrels, getting sick at the age of 80, experiencing extreme pain and then dying in some abandoned little village in northern India. Pretty much the same as any one of us could do, or perhaps we might, we might have it a little easier. Many of us wouldn't have to experience so much pain as that, we could probably find anaesthetics, go to a hospital, and so forth, or be cured. The Buddhas are not those who don't know pain, who don't know blame, who don't know um, being abused or being attacked. Buddhas are those who know that, but they don't use those as occasions for just feeling depressed and despairing, but as occasions for rising up with dignity, with compassion, with forgiveness, with patience. And the happiness in life is something that it is made blessed by our being able to share that with others. Now this is how the Buddha mind works with the experiences of the world. And this is essentially what one is learning to cultivate. And Dhamma, when we take refuge in Dhamma, we're taking we're actually inclining our minds into the way that things really are without trying to twist it one way or another. So Dharma has a, several meanings. It can mean the teaching of the Buddha, actual what the, what the Buddha said. This is called conventional Dhamma or relative truth. The Buddha never claimed his teaching to be ultimate truth but merely a signpost, a pointer towards what is called ultimate truth or the, the, uh, the true Dhamma, ultimately the, the truth of, of the way things are. Now when you use the, these teachings, these teachings are, are there to be applied and seen where they go to. And one has to fully give oneself to them But the taking refuge or giving oneself to the teaching does not imply a belief in it. It's not so much a holding to it, so much as a, as a testing it out. Like if you hold something blindly without really investigating it, that's, that's what belief is about. Belief means you don't really know, you just assume. Like if you say you believe in God, or you believe in, in Buddha, or you believe in something, it means you don't really know you haven't really found out, but you're, you're assuming it in your mind. It's a, it's a guess, isn't it? So when we, we don't believe in Dharma, we actually grab hold of it and have a look. We grab hold of the teachings and apply them. And that grabbing hold does not mean that you're, you're surrendering your powers of discrimination. Because when you, with Dhamma, you apply yourself fully with the mind and the body and the heart. 
so that all your powers of discrimination and attention go right with that and you look you see, and ask yourself how does this feel, does this fit, is this true? And that's what is asked for in taking refuge in the, in the teachings and they will always incline you towards the, a final truth which is not the teachings but where the teachings lead you to. Now when the mind for example actually grasps Dhamma actually takes hold of it, commits itself to it and investigates just that action the mind in that state is a mind that is amazingly alert, awake, attentive, free from from memory, from expectation, from despair, from comparisons, from identification with any position or attitude, physical form. Now this is this just this very action of of using the teachings, of fully applying oneself to it makes, uh, opens our mind, awakens it, and we begin to realize Dhamma. Not as a thing that we have to get to, but as something that essentially we already are. And you, but you never know that until you fully apply, fully commit yourself without doubt, or without hesitation. Now, Sangha taking refuge in this means that we're we're taking very seriously uh, conscious actions that are, say, moral, virtuous, that are beautiful, that are gracious for a human being. Things that animals can't do, for example. You know, the more more purely human qualities. Now we can all. Um, do the things that animals can do. Animals can eat and sleep and so forth. These are not immoral or bad things. We can do those and we can also uh, have use immoral actions which are things we needn't really do. We do because we're either greedy or, or averse. We can kill, lie, steal, uh, etc. But a human being is one who can always actually, if they ask themselves, they, always, they can always know whether a thing is, is good or not, if they take the time to ask, to look into their mind, see what is my intention here? Is it towards the welfare of myself or of others? Or is it really just a, uh, an impulse, a mood, an emotion, that's an instinct? coming out of ignorance or fear, greed or hatred. Taking refuge in, in the qualities of, of good practice means one makes a conscious commitment so we can know, we can realize we are, what our intention is. A fundamental commitment for a, uh, someone using the Buddhist teaching is to, is to use the five moral precepts and to refrain from intentionally taking the life of any creature, including oneself, human, animal, be it uh, fish, flesh, or fowl, or insect, or whatever. to refrain from taking anything that hasn't actually been given or offered or made available to oneself, to refrain from sexually exploiting people, from sexual misconduct, that is just using other people for one's own pleasure without any sense of respect or, or care or concern, um, to refrain from false or harmful speech habits, lying, gossiping, tail-bearing, slander, etc., abuse, and refrain from intoxicating, that is, uh, fuddling, befuddling the mind with uh, liquor, drugs, and so forth. That's the, uh, you know, the fundamental. These are not, I wouldn't say these are copyright of Buddhism. They are pretty basic. 
things that, that if, you, if you're clear about your intentions as a human being, you don't do these. These are not things that are really... I can't see them as being anybody's sincere aim in life. They're things that we tend to do heedlessly or carelessly or foolishly or when we want to avoid or distract. They're not things that we can consciously f feel that, that we're doing as our aim in life. So these are things that when you're actually trying to clarify and live your life clearly from what your intention is and what you aim to do, you use these five precepts and you remember them. Because it's very easy, surprisingly easy, to, to forget and to, to make excuses and to think this doesn't matter because after all the world is so multiple and in its facets, its appearances that one can lose that, that clarity of intention because of the appearance of the world. I think, well it doesn't matter about killing that thing because after all, for science, we can kill it for science. It's kind of is a catch-all, isn't it? For the sake of science, or you can kill. Now, in this this uh, retreat, then the the eight precepts is a kind of more specialised practice. Say for when one is is just purely. Um, undertaking a meditation course, uh, really taking time out from activities, from habitual activities, to, to go into the heart, to look clearly and, and into the heart. Because with this, you're putting aside things that are not necessary. Now this makes your life much simpler for these, um, this period of your retreat, whether it's for three days or ten days or whatever. It makes your life much, much simpler. There's a lot of things you don't have to think about. Things you don't have to, it means that you can actually stay with the, the feelings of the body and the mind, which are now limited, so that you can contemplate them more clearly. So we're giving up, say, amusements and entertainments, and giving up uh, eating solid foods uh, after the midday, and also from overindulgence in, in sleep, just lolling around in bed. These are the, these are the kind of hidey holes that uh, one can get into, which are not, there's nothing immoral about them. But they're distractions, or they can be distractions when they're not necessary. Now in this time you're not going to be working very hard, um, and although this may be unusual, actually it's quite, I've lived for 13 years without eating in the evening. Uh, not a particularly obese, but I'm not any thinner than before I, I took these precepts. Um, so it's quite possible to, to live and survive and get by and, and experience clarity of mind and also make your life that much uh, simpler. With entertainments, now much of our life is actually spent entertaining ourselves, isn't it? You know, vacations, go place to have enjoyment. And there's nothing, well I couldn't say there's anything immoral about that, depending on what the entertainment is. But the kind of energy that goes into that we have to consider why is it that our life is so miserable that we have to put so much effort into entertaining ourselves? What, what is the fundamental lack in us that we constantly need to, say, shoot balls, uh, fly up in the air, whiz down slopes, splash about in the sea, play music, which are, which are really okay, but the, the need to do that, the need is, is somehow is it possible to put that aside and just to be with oneself for a week without needing to kind of add anything to it? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> to actually to be with plain old me 
and really make friends with it and like it without having to kind of jazz it up any. That would be a good thing to learn. In this retreat you have every opportunity to do so because <laughs> you don't have any choice. <laughs> you will be happy. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, uh, one can develop a great sense of humour and contentment when one has really understood that the potential for all our happiness and, our un and unhappiness is right here in our own mind. And when we've begun to come to terms with that, then the, the welfare, the happiness that, and the, the ease that can arise is, that, is far greater than we can find through uh, external activities. Because this is something that we are, it's not something we have to do or go places for. It's stress-free, it's completely free, and it can't be taken away from you. The, the last precept is about refraining from just lolling, uh, just not putting any effort into anything, sleep and, and that kind of indulgence, which can be uh, a sidetrack, certainly um, used to be part of my life, was when you'd, you'd kind of um, broken the other five precepts, six precepts, seven precepts, then the, only, the, the last one you could get into was the just crashing out, lolling in bed to get over, having um, killed, stolen, sexually <laughs> indulged, lied, drunk. <laughs> then at the last, the, the, you could just kind of flop out in bed and that was quite nice too. The last hidey hole. And it's also it's because to just not have to put any effort in, to be totally irresponsible, is a kind of cop-out that we can get into quite, uh, quite instinctively, if we're not aware. Though in a retreat like this, you aren't really asked to put forth uh, a steadiness of effort and to, and to, you know, to, to rise up to occasions put aside the, the, that in us which just wants to kind of flop out all the time. Also with renunciation, this, these were renunciation and restriction, these are, are helpful things to consider because they're not what we normally find in the world as being at all advocated. But this, these two, um, in mean, like restriction means that we're actually finding stillness. Now, the search for happiness makes us very restless. We have to go here and go there and get this and get away from that and become this and avoid that. Restriction means we're actually starting to, 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 to slow down to limit ourselves, to understand the limitations that human beings have to live with, and beginning to, to penetrate or look through or, or transcend the appearance of, of, of our existence, say, which is just a constant flow of, of pleasant or unpleasant experiences. But it, when, when one learns to limit oneself, where we're not, no longer seeking out the pleasant or avoiding the unpleasant, we learn to live within the limitations of our life, then there's this possibility to actually transcend experience, to, to no longer be moved by it, to lo no longer feel bound by it. And sometimes you have to be, actually, you have to really turn into and, and hold yourself into looking into things. Now on a, on a you know in meditation then we're, we're, we're learning just to say to sit through the noise of the mind or the doubt 
or worry or restlessness and memories. Not just to, that's the restriction, is that we no longer run, run away from it, either physically or mentally. We restrict ourselves in that way. We're saying we're just going to st- be on this spot um, and look at this, investigate it. Because the, this, this attitude is that which can see through. And we can realize that whatever the experience of our life, it comes and it goes, it rises and passes away. And there is a knowing, there is a, a clarity, there is an awareness of the mind that's beyond all that. But you need to be still, you need to hold yourself still in order to, to realize that, to remember that. Renunciation is, is a joy in that, in realizing how little one needs how that feverish need to become, to progress, to add, to increase, can be put aside. And there's a a gladness to realize how little one needs. Not just in terms of physical things, but in terms of of, of, uh, notions about oneself. How many of us need to feel that we are liked, respected, or how many of us feel that we need to be uh, important or known, that we need to be, say, significant or doing interesting things or attractive or, you know, in touch with the latest movements, trends? Those kind of needs are really painful and nagging. When one learns to this knack of renunciation, we can see that the most attractive things are things that we, we don't have to reject their attraction, but we can be cool about it. We can put them aside and we can begin to look into what we really are and find that that is full enough. There's always something to need. There's always something, there's always a possibility of something else. I look out of my window, there's thousands of miles of America out of that window. And when I came here, I have like three weeks to be in America. What am I going to do? Should I go to Disneyland, (laughs) Alaska, Hawaii, Grand Canyon, Las Vegas, Los Angeles? How, how am I going to see America? How can I do it in three weeks? Could I, could, how can you do it in three lifetimes? There's always going to be some creek, some fascinating tree, some amazing canyon, some beautiful mountain, some wonderful vista, some, some interesting person, some fascinating thing one hasn't seen, done, been through, experienced, isn't it? And in the search for finding that, all we really find is a sense of, of flurry, restlessness, and agitation. I remember when I, when I went to India, this huge subcontinent of India, tried to, tried to find India. Ran around, and what I found was amoebic dysentery and uh, heat prostration. You know, I spent five months in India trying to trying to gobble India up, gradually getting gobbled up by various bugs and diseases. Now that life is very limited for us. It's it's never long enough. It can't be long enough to pursue all the possibilities that our sense organs can inform us that there are. I can look out of that window, my eyes can keep telling me a whole world out there that you haven't seen. How will you ever find it? How will you ever fulfill yourself. And if, I'm, if I reflect upon it, I realize it, it can't be done. There's no way I can do that. I'm not going to discover America by going out of that window and running around. But if I sit in that room quietly and perhaps experience more deeply just the experience of being here, 
then maybe I will have experienced something intrinsically valuable, beautiful, wonderful about this place, this situation, or even more than that, perhaps something wonderful about being human, by restricting, by limiting, by putting aside all the possibilities and by attuning myself to the way things are now, this moment. This is a renunciation. And there's a, there's a joy in that. It's not a mortification. But it's an inclining one towards an attitude where one really can taste and experience life rather than just be frenziedly snatching, snacking, touching this, rushing off to that. But to taste deeply, one moment at a time. So in this situation then we ask to to reflect upon these not just as as hindrances or as things that we just have to put up with for some obscure reason but as, as vital training reflections on our spiritual path. If one learns the feeling of these these attitudes of taking refuge, of inclining towards what one's intention is, of learning to live within limitation, putting aside what's not necessary, then beyond the retreat you may find those gestures very useful, very helpful for you in your life, because essentially this, uh, this training is not about a particular time or place or custom, it's not Asian, it's not historical, it's not about this particular situation, it's about human beings and the way that human beings are. Now, when we actually approach the practice of meditation, there are many different means of meditation, uh, many different techniques and skills. Um, most of them I have never tried. I've only tried a few, one or two. I expect some of you have tried different ones than I have, maybe quite proficient in some or quite convinced by others, get good results out of this or that. But one thing I would suggest, or like to suggest, in, is that whatever system one follows, the results of that are naturally conditioned by the, by the system that we follow. So if our meditation is kind of a joyous uh, metta, uh, radiant quality, then our minds tend to become that way. Or we view our life in terms of that. We either feel we are radiant or not radiant enough. Or other people are radiant or not radiant. We, we see our lives in terms of how loving or, or unloving it is. An emotional level. If your meditation is one of, of, of emphasizes concentration a lot, then you tend to, that conditions your mind into making judgments about how concentrated you are, whether the place is good for concentration or not good for concentration. Now, the, with the, the aim of meditation is to stimulate, is to, a, an avenue of inquiry to reflect, the, from meditation wisdom arises if you use it rightly. And wisdom, and reflective wisdom, means that you understand what you're doing, you understand that the means of that, the results of that, and you're able to measure in this simple way. And the fundamental reflection is, is there suffering or not suffering? Does this lead to, to dispassion or to passion? Does it lead to to attachment or non-attachment. Now, the, the one can of course become extremely unhappy with 
with loving-kindness meditation. If one expects oneself to feel joyous and loving all the time and sometimes you just don't make it, you know, your, your, your aura dims a little bit, you can feel that you've lost or you've missed out or perhaps you, something gone wrong with you. When you, if, you're, if you're someone who, who appreciates concentration a lot, then what happens when your concentration slackens? Or there are those days when it just doesn't click? Or the times when you've got it really well, but somehow you still feel, is this all or is this something else? Though we have to always contemplate within these, with this frame of reference in Buddhist practice, where is the suffering? Where is the sense of dis-ease or, or lack of fulfilment? It's always because there's something we want that we haven't got, something we've got that we don't want. It's that much. So the fundamental uh, abandonment of that is to see this, is to see <coughs> the, the trying to get, trying to get rid of, and to relax, to release oneself from that. <coughs> So however you meditate, the attitude and the reflection, the intention that you put into it, whether it's coming from fear or greed or grasping or whether it's coming from aspiration to know, that's very important. And the reflection that you make back upon it. See, is this true? Is this a state of peace? Is it causing stress? Is it just something I'm, I'm believing in? Or is it some, kind, is it some uh, thing I'm just taking up as a cause or fascinated by? Does it lead to dispassion, to understanding, or does it lead to, to uh, fanaticism or idealism or what? Now, then whatever meditation you use, and you should perhaps try a few, will be valuable for you. Intention and reflection. Now tonight, um, those of you who have, have been, have got here, you may have been busy today or working today, so um, like to leave it up to you the how you practice between now and uh, the breakfast time, which is six thirty tomorrow morning. So. If, you, if you're, you've been here for a while, or you, you're feeling uh, you have energy, then use your time wisely. I'll be here at five tomorrow morning to, to uh, chant and to sit. But uh, it's more optional, so that people who've driven a long way, or uh, have been working today, get a chance to relax and uh, the retreat can start more as a as a committed group practice tomorrow morning at uh, eight fifteen. Because it's important to relax and, and rest, even if you're just here for two days, and all you learn to do is to breathe out uh, and have a rest. <laughs> then that's something, isn't it? Because you can't really apply effort just from willpower, you have to apply it from a, a sense of, of positive enthusiasm and gladness to practice, not just a kind of dutiful, dogged, slogging away at it. Uh, in order to reach the heart, you have to approach yourself from the heart, like, you know, with a sense of loving-kindness, generosity and, and benevolence, not, come on, you know, I've got you here for ten days, flog, flog. <laughs> you know, get, which people can do to themselves. I've certainly done it to myself in, in years, but it's never, it's never very skillful. 
though to uh, to wisely reflect and to give yourself a, a little while to adjust and to fit into the this practice here I'll uh, leave it up to you so I offer this for your reflection tonight